Hello, Christ Church. My name is Donnie Cho. I am the lead pastor and church planner for Metro here in East Falls, Philadelphia. And I just want to say, first of all, I'm honored and thankful to be able to come and preach God's word to you today. Um, thank you for the invitation. Um, it's not something I take for granted. I really, really admire Christ Church. I admire Pastor Jeff Betcher. He is a wonderful uh, human being, and uh, he, is, uh, he is a lot of admirers even in our church. We follow you guys on the website and, and your Facebook uh, group, and uh, we just love what God is doing in South Philly. You're probably the church that I believe is the most poised to be able to reach the whole of the South Philly area, just uh, doctrinally and just the way you guys uh, are, are set up and established. I just really, really admire that um, and grateful. And hey, I'm a young church. We're a young church. I'm a young church planner. We're still growing. And so it's always good to be able to walk alongside somebody that I view as a partner and as a friend and as a brother, somebody that I respect and admire. And I see that in Pastor Jeff, along with the fact that, um, again, as a church, we believe we're just brother uh, churches of yours coming alongside you, doing a good work. And again, we just love what God is doing. And I believe that you're really the only church that we follow down in South Philly actively because we believe that God has shown favor and will continue to do that here in this church. So I'm really honored and grateful to be able to share in God's word. And the word that I'm going to be preaching to you is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. This is Genesis chapter 50. Allow me to read verses 12 through 21. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, where, which Abraham had brought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And this is God's word. One of the things that we learn uh, in the book of Genesis, and it's contrary to what we think about Old Testament narratives altogether, and that's that the Bible is not about role models. It's not something that you refer to, to emulate. And it's because over and over we see that even the most notable characters in the Bible, the whole of the Bible, they have deep-rooted flaws. They are just riddled and littered with sin. But oftentimes when things go wrong, when they're most wrong, God is most working for our good. And we see that here in verses 12 through 17, Jacob who is Joseph's father, he had just passed away. And his brothers, he has many brothers, they're wondering, now that the father's gone, what's going to become of us? Because they betrayed Joseph. And they caused a lifetime of brokenness in Joseph's life. A lot of hardship uh, befell Joseph during this period. 
And so his brothers, they sent this message to him. And basically, what they, it was probably a lie, most likely a lie. But the message goes like this. Dad said, be nice to us now that I'm gone. Now, you got to remember, after Joseph was sold into slavery, for up to 13 years, he was in prison. And for 22 years, he was separated from his family. After 22 years of being apart from his family, 13 years or up to 13 years in prison, being sold into slavery, Joseph actually forgives them. How does he do that? And if we learn how he did it, we can learn to forgive as well. Four things that we're going to see today. The first is the pain of God. The second is the judgment of God. The third is the wisdom of God. And lastly, the forgiveness of God. The pain, the judgment, the wisdom, the forgiveness. First, we're going to look at the pain of God. Why does Joseph weep? It says in this passage that when he had heard the message, he wept. And it's because his own brothers were afraid of him. His own brothers didn't trust him. Too much time had passed. And this teaches us that you can't just reweave trust once it's been broken. You can't just reweave trust once it's been torn apart. You can't just expect to, to rebuild a relationship if it's seriously been broken. It takes time to rebuild trust. It takes time. And what you need is you need to reconcile. Joseph weeps. He's moved. That's what it means. If you're not moved by your losses, if you're not moved by the brokenness, if you're not moved by the years of brokenness, if you're not moved by the cost of the brokenness in a relationship, then that means your heart has hardened and you will never weep. If after years, you still want to hurt this person, after years have gone by, you still want that person to see their demise, then you're not going to weep. It's because you haven't forgiven that person. But Joseph does weep. He's moved by the loss. He's moved by the brokenness and the years and the cost. And by saving his family, what he's doing is, these are the people who betrayed him. He's absorbing the punishment that really his brothers deserved. And when you do that, the pain is great. The pain is huge. What's the lesson here? Sin takes a toll. Sin takes a toll on our relationships. And that damage is a relational damage. And the cost is physical, it's emotional, it's, it's psychological, it's spiritual. That's why Joseph weeps. He is exacted, so, he has absorbed so much pain in his life. Because to forgive somebody is a choice that you make to absorb that pain to yourself. It's pain that they deserved. Forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is very painful. The problem of sin is big. It's huge. Well, why can't, we, why can't God just let it go? Why can't God just let go of our sin? Forget about it. Look, if you've truly experienced any type of psychological or emotional damage by somebody, at the hands of somebody, you know in your heart, if you've ever been betrayed by somebody, if you've ever been hurt by somebody really big, you know you can't just let it go. It's like that person owes a debt to you and you can't forget, you can't just let go of that debt. You want blood. And if that's the case with us as finite human beings, imagine how much more for an infinite God who infinitely loved his people, infinitely poured out for his people, and we betrayed him. We owe an infinite debt to God. So how do you forgive then? How do you reconcile? Well, that's the second point. The judgment of God. What does Joseph say? And Joseph says three things that teach us really how to forgive. Verse 19, the first thing he says is, am I in the place of God? Remember, Joseph, he was at this point pretty much the prime minister of Egypt. 
And uh, when he arrived there, he arrived there through suffering. He was abandoned by his brothers. He was left for dead by his family. He was imprisoned unjustly. And then he bore the weight of the famine of his country. So he absorbed enormous amount, an enormous amount of betrayal, an enormous amount of pain, and tremendous pressure. His brothers deserved to be punished for that. They deserved to die. Joseph had the power now to destroy them. He had the authority to condemn them, to judge them. But he now says, am I, am I God? Am I the judge? In other words, what he learned is that putting himself in the place of God is at the root of all of our pathologies in life. In Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve. God says to, to Eve, you can eat, well, God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree except that one tree. You can eat anywhere except for that one tree. But when the serpent came, what did he say? He said, if you eat of that one tree, you can be like God. You can take his place. You are the rightful owner of what you can do with yourself, what you decide to do, what you decide to put into your body, what you decide to eat. Only you can decide what is right and wrong for yourself. John Stott, he's a famous theologian. He once said that sin is substituting ourself for God. It's why we love putting ourselves in a high place because we want to be God. It's why we love high positions. We want to be higher than other people to the degree, to the point where we want to step on them and we want to squeeze that on them. It's why we love positions of influence. It's why we love educational status. It's why we love socioeconomic status. It's why we love wealth and power. It's because when you, for instance, think about educational status. To be an expert at something is what? To be an authority. To be an authority. And it's not all selfish. Some of, us love us, some of us love to be doctors. We love to be counselors and teachers and professors and ministers and parents. Why? Because having these roles, for some people, that gives them a sense of influence. It gives them a sense of power. And that's what gets you going in life. That's what gives you a sense of self-worth. What Adam and Eve were tempted by, what they wanted in the garden was, I mean, think about it. Paradise wasn't enough. What they wanted was authority. What they wanted was control. They wanted to be in the place of God. But there's no replacement for God. And even if there was, we'd be terrible substitutes for God. Which is why when we have power, when we have authority, we're ruled by anxiety and pressure. Tremendous anxiety and pressure. And we're constantly looking to all the wrong things in our lives as substitutes for God in our lives. We're surrendering to the authority, I mean, surrendering to the authority and the will of God, even when it hurts, even when it hurts. That's the only cure for our anxiety. It's the only cure for our depression. It's the only cure for that pressure, the craving for power, the craving for authority. In fact, that's why we're, it's so difficult to forgive somebody. When somebody owes you a debt, you feel a sense of power or control over them. You want to collect that debt. You have the power to be able to collect that debt. And so what do you do? You want them to feel lower. And you love, even if it's for a moment, that feeling of superiority over that person. You're placing yourself in a position of God. You're saying, I'm the judge. And it feels good to be in that position. You feel like you have power over a person. When God says in the Bible, vengeance is mine, I will repay, what he's saying is, I am on the throne, only I can judge. 
I am the judge. Only I have the true knowledge, and it's unbiased. It's impartial. Only I know what's going on in each person. Only I know what each person truly deserves. Your knowledge, your story, your narrative, it's only part of the narrative. It's only part of the story. Only God has that right and the ability to judge without being consumed by bias, without being consumed by evil or even the power. But when you're consumed by the knowledge, when you're consumed by your story, when you're consumed by your narrative and you start to render an exact judgment on somebody, you're risking that evil to stay in you, to stay with you. And what happens is once it gets in you and stays with you, it starts to corrode your soul, uh, your soul and you start to become evil. You ever read Nathaniel Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter? Maybe a long time ago we read it. Scarlet Letter, you have this uh, minister uh, named Arthur Dimsdale who had basically committed adultery with another woman, another man's wife, Hester Prynne. And you have Chillingworth, the husband, who, be, who is betrayed by his wife, right? Because his wife commits adultery with this minister. And what does Chillingworth do? With every scheme, with every torment, you slowly start to see Chillingworth mutate into the very evil that he, number one, experienced, and now he is perpetrating. The fastest way to become like the devil is what? To try to become like God. The fastest way then to become a godly person is to give up trying to become like God, to give up being the judge, to give up being the authority, to give up trying to have power over people and craving that and lusting after that. And so that means that you gotta be forgiving. You have to be charitable. You have to be generous. There's the power. Then you become loving. Then you become joyful. Then you become peaceful. And you are able to give peace. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Verse 20. This is the third point. Joseph then speaks to the wisdom of God. The first thing he says is, am I God? Am I the judge? But now he starts to speak to the wisdom of God. When you're deep in the valley... When you're alone and it's dark and if you're lost, staying in the valley is not going to help. What you need is to go to a mountaintop and to get perspective, to see where the valley ends, to see the destination. That's how you get perspective. That's also how you get direction. When you're in a valley, it's also helpful for somebody to be on top of the mountain telling you, right, uh, the direction of the valley, where it's headed, to provide direction and perspective. Joseph's brothers, they were guilty and they were fearful because of their past sin. They had betrayed their brother. So they're in the valley and the valley is dark and the valley is uncertain. You're vulnerable and you are exposed. But Joseph says this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Those are the two things, two other things that he says. He says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Joseph is reflecting on his suffering from a mountaintop. He's got that mountaintop perspective. That's how he's processing his suffering. I don't know where he figured it out. I don't know how he learned it. But somewhere between the moment he was, he was sent off to slavery in Egypt, somewhere maybe in those up to 13 years while he was in prison, somewhere maybe while he was a prime minister in Egypt, somewhere in, that, in those bookends, Joseph Learn to process his suffering from the mountaintop. How do you process your trouble? How do you process your betrayals? Because from the valley, you can't reconcile pain 
your pain and the goodness of God. It's very difficult to do that. But Joseph then says those two things. This is how he processed it. On one hand, the pain, you meant it for evil. But on the other hand, the good, God meant it for good. From the valley, you only see what? The darkness, the evil, the sin. And you dwell on that pain. It's easy to dwell on that pain. And some of us have gone through just immeasurable things in life. Immeasurable betrayals. And God oftentimes seems absent. Oftentimes you feel your soul just crawling just to get by. Because that's what it's like to be in the valley. You meant it for evil. This person meant to harm me. That's what what Joseph says. You meant it for evil. But then he says, God meant it for good. Notice he doesn't say it's all good. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the suffering was good. He doesn't deny that, hey, what you did was evil. He doesn't deny what you did caused a lot of suffering. He says on one hand, yes, it's evil. But on the other hand, it's for good. Not everything is good. It's evil here, but it's for the good. That's the view from the mountaintop. How does that shape your view of suffering, especially when you've had wrongs done to you in life? I mean, if you think about it, Jacob, who was Joseph's father, uh, he lied to Isaac uh, and, uh, and Esau. And, uh, and, that, and that poisoned his family. That poisoned his life. Lots of brokenness there. He lied to his father, lied to his brother, and that poisoned his life, poisoned his soul, lots of brokenness. But because of this, he had children. And because he had children, one of those people, one of those children led to the redemption of all of his people. Joseph. You know what that means? If you have your view from the mountaintop, this is the end of regret. This is the end of self-pity. Uh, This is the end of uh, lamenting over opportunities that have been lost, uh, regretting horrible decisions that led to serious damage, lots of brokenness, because uh, those things now, if you're a Christian, those things can't truly ruin you. In fact, God intends them in your life. God intends them in your life, ultimately, to strengthen you, to save you. That's of you from the mountaintop. Even you, even your mistakes can't mess up your life. Even your mistakes, no matter how broken and low and and just messed up and sad your life may feel, you cannot ultimately mess up your own life if God is present in it. God intends it. God meant it for good. That's the view from the mountaintop. See that? Even if you're not on the mountaintop, you have to assume if you're in the valley that there is a mountaintop. You can't say, well, I can't think of a good reason for my suffering, so there must be no good reason. Is that good logic? I mean, is that even good logic? It doesn't take a wise person to see that that thought, that notion is foolish, you see? And yet so many of us, are we just dwell on the fact that, well, I can't think of a good reason, so there must not be a good reason. I can't think of a good reason for my suffering, so God must not exist. That is terrible logic. On one hand, God is in control. So you don't have to fight. You don't have to resist. On the other hand, God is in control and he's present. And he called you. That makes you very responsible. You need to live in line with the presence of God. No matter what you've been through. No matter what you've been through. Is God absent in your life? I mean, the entire narrative of Joseph 
if you read in the book of Genesis, it shows us that God is present even when he seems most absent. God is present even in silence. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but that didn't sink me. That didn't ruin me. And he wasn't saying that in a humble way. He was weeping. He's humbled by this. He says, you meant it for evil, but how good and faithful is God? Because in fact, it saved me. It saved me from my arrogance and my pride. You see, Joseph, as a completely different person, he says, it saved me and my own life. Even though I was in prison, even though I was a slave, even though I experienced a tremendous amount of pressure, that actually saved me from myself. But it also saved you, my family. You can eat. It's saved, and it continues on God's mission and God's purpose for his people. God is faithful. God is good. Trust his promises. Trust his word. Have you gone to the word of God lately? Read his word. Trust his word. It is so trustworthy and good. What great resource to be able to trust God, to trust the creator of the universe. You can go to him. You can go to his word. You can go to him. You can go to him in prayer. Psalm 19 Psalm 19 says what? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now, the last thing that, David, uh, that Joseph says is in verse 21, don't be afraid. His brothers had every reason to be afraid. They're standing before the prime minister that they betrayed, who has the ability and the authority to execute them. Joseph had this dream that, uh, that dream that he had where, uh, that filled him with pride where his 11 brothers would bow down to him. Finally, it actually came true. But Joseph forgives them because he's not the judge. Power doesn't consume him or take over his life. Desiring to have power over other people was not his thing. And because, and the reason why is because he has a greater power. He recognizes that God is in this, the greater power, God himself, who humbled him, directed him, guided him, provided for him. It humbled him. And so he's reflect, reflecting on this. It brought Joseph to tears. He's moved by this. Joseph is reflecting on the love of God, even though he didn't deserve that love. He didn't deserve God watching over him all his life because he was proud and he was arrogant. And the thought of that, just the thought of that moved him, brought him to tears. He wept. It gave him wisdom over the years. It gave him grace. It gave him assurance. And it gave him the grace to assure his own brothers. They were one time his enemies, and yet he was able to assure them. Now, I know what we're thinking here. We're saying, well, I can't do what Joseph did. You know why you can't do what Joseph did? And if you're saying that to yourself right now, think of somebody that that just really hurt you or that you're having a tough time forgiving. The reason why we can't forgive them right now just yet is because we're still in the valley. We need that mountaintop view. Joseph had a mere glimpse of God's grace, and that shaped the way that he treated other people. But we have a full understanding don't we? I mean, Jesus Christ, whom we see and know fully, didn't put himself in the place of God. I mean, he is God, and yet Jesus Christ was betrayed by his brothers, betrayed by his friends, and Jesus Christ suffered. Jesus Christ was arrested. Jesus Christ was was condemned. 
And, and yet Jesus Christ is saying, you can't mess up your life, even through your own sin. Because even through your own sin, my power is at work in you. That's amazing. And through you, right, he says, what? Although I am in the place of God, although I am in the judge, for your sakes, I came down, I suffered, I bled, I died for you. John chapter 18 and John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's on trial. Who's Pilate? Pilate's the judge. And Jesus is judged. Jesus is condemned. He died the death that we deserved. And so on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost the presence of God in my life. God is now completely absent from me. We sometimes feel like God is absent, but he's saying, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God is ever present. He's active. Jesus says, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. God is completely absent. I've lost the presence of God, and I'm absorbing the full wrath of God, the penalty that we deserved, so that you can be forgiven. Because of our sin, because we owe this huge debt, and, and God says, for that, I deserve payment in blood. So Jesus Christ said, I will pay that payment. And so he pays it in full on the cross with his own blood, with his own life. He descends into the ultimate valley, the ultimate valley of pain and suffering and death, so that we, no valley, no pain could ever ruin us, so that you can live without regret, so you can live without guilt, and you can have the power then to forgive. You see that? God brings the ultimate good through the ultimate evil, through the life of Christ and the death of Jesus. And because of that, through that pain and through that ugliness and through that evil, he brings out the ultimate good, salvation. We can be saved through that. The cross is the ultimate resource for change in our lives. The cross is the ultimate resource for forgiveness in our lives. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ says, it is finished. That means the work is done. What he's saying is the debt, that sin debt, that blood debt, that betrayal debt is paid. We owe a debt. It's been paid by Jesus. That means that the ultimate work for reconciliation, the groundwork, the infrastructure for reconciliation is complete. You can't do anything to complete it. You have to rely on the resource, get on the infrastructure, the foundation of Christ, who is our ultimate resource, not just as an example of forgiveness, but as a foundation and a driver of forgiveness in our own lives, the power for forgiveness. If you believe that Jesus Christ suffered, bled, and died, and went through the ultimate valley of suffering and pain for you. If you truly believe that, to the extent that you believe that, there's power to forgive in other people's lives. You can set them free. Vengeance only leads to greater violence. You ever watch the movie Green Book? Uh, It's a a phenomenal movie. You have Mahershala Ali's character. What does he say? Even though he he has suffered injustice after injustice, even as he's working, even as he's conducting his travel and his visits, he says, you never win with violence. You only win when you maintain your dignity. If you look for vengeance, you're going to lose composure. Why? Because they owe you. 
They owe you. I want blood, you say. And that corrosion will enter into your heart and your soul and will destroy you from the inside out the way it left Adam and Eve lost in the garden because they thought that they were in the place of God. John Stott, that famous theologian, said, sin is man substituting himself for God. But the gospel, grace, is God substituting himself for man. And so Jesus Christ came down and took our place and thus laid out the groundwork for forgiveness. If you look to Jesus to hear your deepest cry for help when you are suffering, to hear your deepest cry for mercy, if you look to Christ on the cross, crucified for you, look to him and say, I want vengeance so bad. I want blood. I want that person to spill that blood. But then you look to Christ and see his blood being spilled for you. Then you know that you are forgiven first. It will heal your soul because you know we created so many more betrayals against our God and our Father. And we know that yet God, through Jesus, has not only paid the penalty, but has released us and has set us free. That will give you the power and the freedom to forgive. That's what it means to stand on the mountaintop and to see the valley when you're lost. It's gonna lead you to greater wisdom it's going to lead you to a, a power that you didn't have. It's going to lead you to a greater perspective and view. If you don't do this, that anger that you have, that you're holding on to, it takes work to hold on to that. It, I know that it feels natural to hate. It feels natural to be angry at somebody. But, but sometimes years go by, we're still holding on to it, and it, it's, it's rooted itself in us, and it will consume us, Right? but to the degree that you trust that Jesus Christ forgave you, that he absorbed your evil, you will be able to absorb the betrayals and the slander and the evil of others. I've been there. I've suffered for years. Um, sometimes some of the people that I view, that I admired and feel very close to, and it's so easy then to want to withdraw and to want to just walk away from certain people and to want to be able to just say, just want vengeance in your heart and to be able to say that I can't trust other people, you're hurting yourself, right? We need to be free of that. How do we be free of that? We say, yes, they meant it for evil. They probably did. But the Lord is in it and he's present and he's shaping us through it to strengthen us. And so now you will have a deeper compassion for people who are suffering. Now you have a deeper compassion for people who have sinned. If you've committed uh, an act of betrayal against another person and you know that you've been forgiven, you will have compassion towards people who are betrayers, towards people who sin. And you will also, if you've suffered betrayal and yet God has healed you, you will have deeper compassion on people who have, who have suffered betrayal or, or suffered uh, evil. Plunge your pain, plunge your wounds into the wounds of Jesus. Plunge it into the foot of the cross and you will find ultimate healing for your soul and that supernatural power to forgive. Christ Church, there's a lot of reconciliation that we need to be doing because our lives are just broken, I know. And I can't wait till I actually visit, I can't wait till I actually meet some of you in person but I know that there's just, in any, in any gospel community, there is a lot of work to be done when it comes to reconciliation because we have so many different types of brokenness uh, in our communities. 
The gospel gives us a supernatural power to forgive so that we can open our arms and be vulnerable and to be able to submit ourselves to Christ who has forgiven us and then be able to set people free for those who have wronged us. Let it start there. Let's start inwardly, internally, supernaturally, vertically, and then let's think outwardly towards one another to be able to say, yes, the Lord can free and the Lord can redeem. If he has redeemed me, surely he can redeem you. Let's be a part of that work of God in their lives, in one another's lives. And it may take some time. It may, you know, trust, you can't just reweave it. It takes time to build. But we have to lay that groundwork. And the way we do that is to rest on the foundation of Christ and his forgiving grace in our lives. Will you join me in that? Will you join Metro in that as well? Because that will impact communities. That will impact our city in a very powerful way. It, but it begins here. Let it begin with you. Let's pray.